0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right. Good morning, everyone. Let's take out our Bibles today and turn to uh, Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, we're studying uh, through the book of Exodus uh, together as a church. And uh, today we come to our ninth teaching in this 15th chapter. So if you turn there, get yourself settled. Uh, As you guys are turning there, I wanted to give you a little bit of an update. As you know, we've been praying for our next uh, youth pastor here at Calvary. Uh, Pastor Josh and his wife Erica and their two lovely kids are going to be moving as missionaries to Chiang Mai, Thailand in January. And we're very excited for that, uh, for them, praying for them, and uh, excited to support them in their next uh, adventure. And uh, really, in a lot of ways, stoked that we had them for as long as we did. They're such adventurous people Uh, But we've been looking for our next youth pastor. It's taken a little bit longer than we would have liked. We've got some great candidates that we've been talking to, some possible uh, different uh, options here and there. But it's looking more and more like we're not going to have that person installed at the moment that Pastor Josh leaves. Our current goal is to try to get someone installed by March. Uh, So that means we've got an interim period that we need to cover, so I just want to let you know that over the next uh, couple of months, starting in January, when Josh and Erica actually depart, uh, Pastor Matt and myself, Matt was just on the screen, and I'm right here, Um, we're going to uh, cover the youth ministry on an interim basis. He's going to take care of the leadership of the youth ministry, and I'll take care of the teaching and the teaching scheduling for uh, the youth ministry, so We've both been youth pastors before, but it has been a minute. Uh, I think the kids that I was a youth pastor of—they're actually Josh and Erica's age now. So uh, it's been a little while. So you can pray for wisdom and all of that. But this is an important ministry to us in the church. It would be—it's—it's uh, it's better to us to wait and get the right person than to go quickly and put in the wrong person. So we really want to. Uh, cover the ministry, take care of the kids, and all of that. So that's what we're going to be doing, at least at the turn of the new year. And uh, I don't know. I'm kind of looking forward to it a little bit. I like kids. And uh, I had to get permission from my teenage daughters to do this because they're both, you know, two of them are in the youth group. So I'm like, I don't want to ruin your life or experience. And uh, they said, Dad, that's awesome. We would love to have you. You're the best in the world is what I got out of it. Okay, so uh, today our passage is uh, Exodus chapter 15, Um, just the first first 21 verses, not the whole chapter. It's a song, actually, that the people of Israel sang after the episode we looked at last week, the Red Sea victory. So I want to read it in its entirety, if you guys would follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. Verse 1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing... To the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Verse five, the floods covered them, They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord, verse 18, will reign forever and ever. And then this little postscript. For when the horses, verse 19, of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, The people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to the Lord, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. God, we come before you this morning thankful that you are a victorious God. And you have taken the horse and the rider of sin and death and shame that were against us, and you have thrown them into the sea by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So we thank you for that. We pray that this song would be a help to us, an aid to us, an encouragement to us today, that we would sing it along with the people of Israel. And Lord, we pray for the youth group ministry and ask, Lord, that you would provide, indeed, the person or people that you have in mind to lead them into this next era of fruitfulness, such an important age. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd bring us, raise up the right people. We thank you, Lord. We commit our time into your word, into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, what, what we have here uh, in Exodus chapter 15 is a, is a real shift, if we're being honest. You're kind of cruising along in the book of Exodus, and it's all narrative form. It's all story form, and it's exciting. It's rapidly moving. You read about the oppression of the people of Israel, and the birth of baby Moses, and the miraculous protection of this young child, and immediately his time in the wilderness in banishment, and then his time when he comes back at age 80, the media with God at the burning bush, the coming in and confronting Pharaoh, the uh, 10 plagues, the Passover night and the Red Sea, it's all story form. And I think so many of us, we, we found ourselves in this story. We, we see ourselves in this story in some way or in various ways or in many ways. Uh, but, but then we come to this place right, right here, almost at the midpoint of the, of the book, not quite the midpoint, where uh, 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 the story is interrupted by a song. This is is Hebrew poetry. It's Hebrew parallelism at its finest. And this song is a song, of course, that they sang as a result of what just happened at the Red Sea. Now, to be honest, we don't know exactly how these songs came to be. I mean, when you just read through the book of Exodus, it almost looks like they they came to the other side of the Red Sea, the waters closed, the Egyptians were defeated, uh, they were the Hebrews celebrating their victory, and then it almost reads like they broke out into this like Barbie movie, La La Land style like song on the shore. There they all, they all miraculously know every verse and lyric that they need to sing of this song. And maybe that's how it happened. Maybe the Spirit of God just put on millions of people this heart to sing this same exact song in unison. Maybe they had hand motions and all that kind of stuff. Uh, or maybe over time, this song was developed. It's very possible that Miriam, who is mentioned last, she's called the sister of Aaron, which means that she was also the sister of Moses, Moses Moses's older sister. She has a tambourine in her hand. She sings at the very end in the recap, she sings the first line of the whole song. So it's very possible that as they're crossing the Red Sea, God puts this song on her heart. It's not all that hard to learn. She's just playing a tambourine. It's a very simple instrument. And she just began singing this song, and maybe that was the song in embryo. And then over time, they began to develop this song. But all all we know is that God inspired this some way, somehow. And for thousands of years, the people of Israel have been singing uh, the song of the sea or the song of Moses or the song of Miriam. And this song, like most songs in Scripture is not just a song where we're supposed to observe it from afar and say that's nice for them, but the song is actually an invitation. We're meant to sing this song right along with the people of Israel who are our spiritual forefathers and ancestors so many years ago. We're invited to meditate on the victory that God gave to them as a vehicle by which we can meditate on the victory that God has given to us. We're invited to consider all the same things about God and who he is that they considered on that day on the shores of the Red Sea. So what I want to do today is I want to consider four major aspects or truths that they sang about God from this song. Uh, four truths that I think if we embrace them, if we ingest them, they'll dramatically transform our lives. Our lives will become more of a song like this song if we can think about and consider these truths about who God is. But but why would we focus on four truths only from this song? Why not three, the classic three-point sermon sermon? Uh, Why not seven? Why not many others? I mean, there are lots of lines in this song. Well, the reason I want to focus on four is because I think the song is broken up into four sections. Uh, The reason that I say that is because there are four groups in this song that have a similar beginning and end. Uh, Four sections that start with a repeated line, And then end with a reference to a stone or a rock or lead. Let let me show you what I mean as we just overview this psalm. Look look at verse 1 again. It starts with the statement, Israel sang this song to the Lord. And then right after it, they say, I will sing to the Lord. That's the repeated phrase that kicks off this first section. It's a way for them to say, God is worthy of our worship. We're going to sing to the Lord. Then look forward at the end of verse five. Talking of the Egyptians, they say, they went down to the depths like a stone. Okay, so the repeated line in the first section is, Israel sang to the Lord, or I will sing to the Lord. The stone line is, they went down into the depths like a stone. Okay, in the second section, it begins right after verse five, in verse six, where what they say twice there is, your right hand, O Lord. And we're going to talk about that. This is them saying, God, your power, your might, your strength. They're going to praise God for how powerful he is. And then in the end of verse 10, they talk of the Egyptians and they say, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. That's a close of the second section. In the third section, verse 11, they look forward. They say, who is like you? God. And that's the question they asked two times. It's the repeated phrase of the third section Who is like you? And the closing stone line of that section is actually in the middle of verse 16, where it says that dread fell upon the uh, nations that they were heading out to, and they are still as a stone. So not sinking down like lead or sinking down like a stone, but they're still as a stone. It's like they were paralyzed as a result of what they'd heard God had done to the Egyptians. On the fourth section, the repeated line is in the middle of verse 16, where twice they say, till your people pass by. They're celebrating that God is going to give them the victory in the future. And then mysteriously, there is no last stone reference at the end of the song. And I'm going to talk about why I think that is at the close of this teaching. All right, so are you guys super confused at this point? Was I clear enough? Do you guys track with that? Four sections to this song, all beginning with a repeated line, ending with a reference to stone. All right, so that's going to form our outline for how we think about this. So the first movement of the song, verse 1 through 5, which I mentioned to you, uh, it seems to be that what they're focusing on at the beginning of this song is that Yahweh, God, the one who delivered them, he is worthy of worship and praise. How many of you would say that of the Lord today? He is worthy of worship and praise. For what he's done, for what he's accomplished, he is worthy. And that's what they say. And they make a commitment about it. They say, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed victoriously or gloriously. Uh, in other words, God had put this new song in them and they are making a commitment. We are not going to suppress this song. I mean, we got some to sing about at this point. We've been delivered from our captivity, and we are now free on the other side of the Red Sea, and we are going to celebrate God. In fact, they were so excited about what God had done that they said there in verse 2, they said, the Lord is my strength, and the Lord is my song. Like, that's so cool. They're just thinking about who God is, and they're like, He is my song. He is the one and the reason I celebrate. Through the events of the Red Sea, God had become their song. Now, what were the events, of course, that they sang about? Well, it's interesting because the song really doesn't talk about, they're not really singing about the plagues. The thing that's fresh in their mind is that God had done an amazing thing for them at the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, So they sing about how Pharaoh and his chariots in verse 4, which, you know, chariots in their day were like the ultimate military weapon. You know, for them to see a chariot coming, it was like seeing a fighter jet come towards you in our modern time. And they they watched these chariots thrown into the Red Sea. It just was amazing to them. Pharaoh's chosen officers, they said in verse 4 and 5, went down into the depths like a stone. In other words, it seems that, As the people of Israel watched this whole event unfold, which obviously they didn't really have much to do with, they just walked through the Red Sea and God won the victory. It seems that what they were doing was they were learning about who God is. You remember that God had appeared to this family uh, in the book of Genesis, but by the end of the book of Genesis, their family is only about 70 people in total. Hundreds of years have passed by. They could have easily forgotten about who God is. And now four centuries later, the question is, who is the Lord? And they say in verse two and three, this is my God, my father's God, a man of war. The Lord is his name. That's what they came to learn of God that day. Our God, he is a man of war. I remember one day talking about this, talking about who that's who God is. God is a, God of, a, a man of war. And somebody told me later, a lady told me later, she's like, you, you, you shouldn't talk about God like that. You shouldn't talk about God like he's a, he's a man of war. And I'm like, well, I'm just quoting the Bible. You know, it's, the, <laughs> it's not like I'm inventing this uh, myself. What, what does that mean? You know, that, that God is a man of war. Uh, this whole song, of course, is a response to salvation. Because God had saved them, they would sing to him. They considered him worthy of their worship and praise. After trudging through the dark, chaotic waters with tumultuous winds on the dry ground of the Red Sea, the the Hebrew people, they just paused. What just happened? What, What did we just witness? And as Egyptian soldiers washed up onto the shore, they realized that God had just fought for them and delivered them. He was a man of war. They realized he had warred against Pharaoh's army, so Israel responded the best way they knew how. Mere words could not express their feelings. They were overwhelmed, so they, they sang, we know now that Yahweh, the Lord, he's a man of war. The Lord is his name, and I'm here to announce to you this morning that our Lord is still a man of war. He saw the battered masses enslaved to the elements of this world, living dead in trespasses and sins, and he hated it. He would not sit still. Before you or I ever emulated the Hebrew people and cried out to God for deliverance, God, behind the scenes, just as he did for the Israelites, raised up a deliverer. From the foundation of the world, the Bible says, Christ, the Son of God, was slain us. Better than Moses, Christ came. He did not raise a wooden staff, but was raised to a wooden cross. He did not sacrifice lambs like they did on that Passover night because he is the sacrificial lamb. He did not rain down plagues, but plagues rained down on his body during those six hours upon the cross. But the dark night of his death, the true death of the firstborn, it brought his resurrection. He was brought through the burial waters so that he might bring us through the burial waters. He died for sin so that we might die to sin with him. He rose so that we might rise. In other words, when there was no way, no way for us to be right in the sight of God, no way for us to be brought home to the living God, when we were dead and trapped and paralyzed and destined to darkness forever, Jesus arrived. He lifted his voice and said, be still and know that I am God. I will make a way where there is no way. He came out of his grave and provided the path to resurrection life for everyone who trusts in him. The waters have parted, new life and freedom are ours. And because of that, over and over again, we're meant as his people to sing and celebrate and rejoice at what he's done. We sing because of the salvation that he won for us. He's worthy and worship uh, of our worship and praise. You now, as long as Israel kept the worship of Yahweh at the center of their nation, they thrived as a people. But whenever they drifted, they suffered. And I believe the same is true in the Christian life. Whenever our worship and our appreciation of the great redemption that Christ has won for us upon the cross, whenever that begins to fade in glory in our mind's eye, we begin to atrophy. We get weird. The book of Hebrews tells us that we must pay closer attention, Hebrews 2 verse 1, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And a few verses later, he says that the thing that we need to pay closer attention to is the great salvation that has been accomplished for us. We need to rehearse that salvation. We need to sing about that salvation. We need to celebrate over and over again how God threw all the pharaohs and chariots of sin and death that pursued us into the proverbial sea. With that victory in mind, we remember afresh that God is worthy of our worship and praise. So maybe a question that you could ask yourself in this first movement of the song is, what makes me sing? What makes me celebrate? And I hope and pray that it's the gospel. I hope over and over again, you're celebrating and thanking and worshiping God for what he has accomplished. Okay, the second section of the song, uh, verse six through 10, um, in it, they praised God as the almighty, all-powerful God, and kind of their way of doing it was to mention a couple of times this thing of God's right hand, God's right hand. Now, I'm a, I'm a lefty, so I've always been bothered by the fact that most people are not left-handed or, or right-handed, and in biblical times, I was always, always bothered that they would train that out of people. You know, if you, were, if you showed signs as a little child that you were a lefty, they'd try to train that out of you, become a right-hander. And so in the Bible, when the right hand or the right arm is spoken of, uh, what it speaks of or what it's saying is that is the pinnacle of that person's power and might. Uh, They might have a really weak right arm, and that means that they have minimal power. Uh, They might have a right arm like Pastor Manny, and then you know that they are mighty and strong and powerful. That's kind of the idea of the Old Testament scripture. And what they said about Yahweh, about his right hand, is that his right hand was, verse six, glorious in power and shatters the enemy. And they went on to talk about this, about this power of God, just the magnificence of of, of his might. Uh, They said in verse seven that his great majesty overthrew his adversaries and consumed them like fire easily consumes dry straw. And how had God piled up the waters of the Red Sea? What they said in verse eight through 10 is that he did it with the blast of his nostrils. It's kind of like a way of saying, our God is so strong that he can destroy the most advanced military on the face of the earth by blowing his nose. That's how strong our God is. As easily as we exhale, God dropped his game over move. And because the enemy, in verse 9 and 10, would not stop chasing the Hebrews, God made them sink like lead in mighty waters. Now this song, the song of Moses or the song of the sea, um, is, uh, is reminiscent of a few songs in the Bible where something happened and then after it happened, somebody wrote a song about it and they began to celebrate. Um, they're post-victory songs, God gives a victory, God answers a prayer, and the people respond with a song. So in the book of Judges, uh, Barak and Deborah, they defeat an enemy king named Sisera, and they tell the story of it, and then right afterwards, Judges 5, they sing a song about it. Uh, When Samuel was born after Hannah had been barren for so many years, and she cried out to God when he was born, she sings a song of victory about it. Uh, When David went out and defeated Goliath, the story is told, and then right after that, what happens? The people, especially the women in Israel, they sing a song about it. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. At the end of David's whole life, you've read the whole story of David's life and what concludes the end of his life in 2 Samuel 22, it's a song of God's faithfulness in his life. Gabriel made a promise to Mary that she would give birth to the Savior. And what does Mary do? She sings a song of rejoicing to God. And John the Baptist, when he was born, the story is told. And when it's told, once it happens, his father Zechariah begins to sing a song of prophecy and thanksgiving. God has just done what he said he would do. And all these songs of post-victory celebration... They point forward to the ultimate songs of victory that we will sing when Christ's kingdom comes in full. In the book of Revelation, we read of these songs. At least one portion of the church, an intensely persecuted segment of the church, is going to sing in Revelation 15, the song of Moses, the servant of God, maybe portions of even uh, Exodus 15. And all of the church will sing with a loud voice of a great multitude from heaven, Revelation 19, 1 and 2, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are just, are true and just for he has judged. In other words, a a moment is coming where you and I are going to be on our own shores of the Red Sea singing a song of celebration about the great victory that Christ has accomplished. But what I want to say today is that I think the knowledge of that future song, that future post-victory celebration is meant to produce in us many pre-victory songs of celebration. Uh, There's a place in the book of Acts that I think typifies this beautifully. You might remember the story where Paul and his ministry team went to a city called Philippi. And things went well at first. They preached the gospel. A few women came to know Jesus. Uh, uh, They were cruising along in the city. And uh, there was a slave girl who was demon possessed. She had been used by her owners for fortune telling. And she was following them and crying out, These servants are, these men are servants of the Most High God. And it was very distracting. So Peter turned and he delivered this woman from her demonic oppression. And she was in her right mind. And, but because of that, her owners were really upset and they had Paul and Silas thrown into prison. That night, the Bible tells us they were in the bottom of the prison, in the stocks. And what they were doing is fascinating. They were singing psalms and hymns to God. They were celebrating. They were, they were praising God. They were worshiping God. They were not living in great victory in that moment, but they were singing as if they were worshiping a victorious God. And you might know the story. There was a great earthquake. The bars and gates of the prison were opened up. You and I might have made a break for it at that moment, but not Paul. He saw that the jailer was about to take his own life because he woke up as a result of the earthquake and saw all the prison gates opened and thought that everyone had fled for their lives and that he had failed his job. But Paul said, do not harm yourself for we're all here. And he led the man to Jesus who led his whole family to Jesus. Paul was singing these songs before the victory even happened. And I think in a sense, that's what the Lord wants to do in all of our lives. He wants to help us to be a people who are singing post-victory songs before the victory even actually occurs. That there be that level of trust in God because of the power and the might that we believe belongs to him. I think that's meant to be the tenor of the New Testament church. Because of the victory that Christ won in the past, we can sing thousands of pre-victory songs in the present because really they're all post-victory songs. Christ has won, God is powerful, and we can celebrate his power today. So maybe a question to ask in that second section is, how much do I trust the Lord right now? Am I scared? Am I panicked? Or do I, am I confident in him and his power? Okay, let's look at the third section together. This would be verse 11 all the way through the middle of verse 16. And uh, the way they start this part of the song is they ask the question twice, who is like you? Uh, This is their way of saying that God is holy and he's unlike all false gods. There's nobody like him. You have to remember what they just witnessed. They just seen God defeat a myriad of Egyptian false gods. I mean, including Pharaoh. It had been an educational experience for the Hebrew people. Uh, during their long years of slavery, they, they drifted from the knowledge of Yahweh, but each plague taught them something about God. And they said in verse 11, he's majestic in holiness, he's awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder. They, they just are able to say, our God is unique. There's nobody like him. I, I recently heard a saying um, from Uh, that was new to me from pros professional sports and uh, I I guess some athletes are saying this nowadays and and the saying goes the other guy lives in a big house too And, and I guess what it's meant to convey is hey you know we we train we work really hard we're really good at what we do but so are our opponents we're professional athletes we're not playing high school kids you know the the Other guy has been well paid also. The other guy lives in a big house too. But to Yahweh, the people of Israel discovered there was no other guy with contrasting power. If there ever could be an other guy with contrasting power, it would have been Pharaoh. He was the pinnacle of human strength. And many people, uh, myself included, think that he was tapped into demonic power as well. But the Hebrew people... They could celebrate that God triumphed over Pharaoh with ease. It was so simple for him. And the song shows us how they knew that God had redeemed them and was taking them on a journey, they said in verse 13, to his holy abode, his holy abode. They they, they sense that, you know, we're not done. God has not brought us across the Red Sea to just say, now, I just saw how you guys were suffering there, how you were enslaved. I just really didn't like that, so I wanted to set you free, so now go. No, they knew that God still had plans for them. He said he's bringing us to his holy abode, whether that's Mount Sinai or the tabernacle or the promised land. They knew that God is bringing us on, their, on this journey, and they also felt that all the nations around them, in front of them, were terrified, They said the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, they heard what God did for us to the Egyptians. And they are now, they said in verse 16, still as stone. It's it's like these nations have had a stroke and they're paralyzed because of all that God has done for us. All that he's done to Egypt, a nation far more powerful than the four that are mentioned. Fresh off the victory at the Red Sea, This is what you're hearing. You're hearing confidence from God's people. Part of the reason I say that is because uh, when you read the accounts of their journey into the promised land, it's really clear that the Philistines, Edomites, Moabites, and Canaanites weren't totally as afraid as the people of Israel are singing about right now. Uh, There were some that respected God. There were some that feared the Lord. But there were many who just said, we're going to fight for ourselves. We're going to have victory over your God. Maybe God just gave you victory there in Egypt, in that area, but not here. It's clear that what's happening for the Israelites is that they are caught up in this moment and in poetry or in song, which sometimes is hyperbolic or idealized, they are saying, God has put the fear of the Lord into the hearts of all of our enemies. They are confident at this point, in other words. Eventually, the brand of awe or victory that this song depicts would happen, but on the shore of the Red Sea, this movement of the song shows us that Israel was overflowing with confidence in God. How about you? Are you confident in who God is? Are are you believing in him, trusting in him? This movement shows us how the Hebrews believed that what God had done for them at the Red Sea was only a starting point that there was more that God wanted to do. So many of us, we tell the story of our lives with God, and it's just all what we used to be and where things used to be, and then God reached in and got a hold of my life 29 years ago, and what's happened since then? Well, not very much. Might be the story for some of us, but God has a destination. He has things he is still doing after that Red Sea crossing. And the people of Israel were confident of that fact. It's a beautiful facet of worship. When we meditate on what God has done in the past, we become bolstered and strong for the road ahead. You know, all of us, we love the story of David versus Goliath. It's a great story. We even sang a little bit about it uh, this morning. There's one facet to that battle or or victory from David that I love so much and it's when Saul is interviewing David before he sends him out into the battlefield. You know, he has this beautiful line or this classic line to David. He said, why should I send you out? You're but a youth and this guy, Goliath, he's been a man of war from his youth. You know, he's been killing people from the time he was your age. You're just this little boy. You, you came here to bring some cheese to your three oldest brothers. Like, why would I send you out in representative warfare against a, an assassin like that? And David, he just told Saul this story. He said, well, when I used to take care of my father's sheep, when a lion would come or a bear would come and attack the flock, I would rise up and I would run. And I would strike the lion or strike the bear bear or grab them by their beard and tear them away from the sheep. And the same God who gave me victory over the lion and the bear will give me victory over this Philistine. He looked backwards and realized, you know, God has been faithful in the past. I I think he knew that feeling. I mean, that's like a crazy feeling to see a bear and just think to yourself, I'm going to run towards it. But David knew that this unique thing had happened, that the Spirit of God had come upon him and given him a power that was other than his human experience. And he knew the same God who has done that for me in the past, he will do that for me when I go out against Goliath. And I pray that God would do the same for you. I pray that he would fill your heart and your mind with confidence as you look back on his past victories in your life, especially his ultimate victory on the cross. It was that victory of Jesus's death and burial and resurrection that made Paul ask the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? So maybe a question we could ask in this third movement of the song is, am I confident because of God? Am I confident because of him? Okay, let's quickly look at the last movement. of the song. In the final movement, I think what they're rejoicing over is that God is in covenant love with them, that he's made like a promise with them. He's decided, I'm going to love you. Um, Part of the reason I say this is because the repeated line of this section is found in the middle of verse 16 two times. They say, till your people pass by. What, What that meant is that they were confident because of everything God had done in the past that he would bring them Verse sixteen and seventeen to his mountain, to his place, or to his abode. Now it's a little unclear where did they think God was bringing them. Were they taught when they talked about God's mountain? Were they talking about Mount Sinai, which is where they got the Ten Commandments in chapter nineteen? Were they talking about the Promised Land? Were they talking about the tabernacle that God was going to have them build and prepare, or were they talking in some telescoped way about all three? Like when I go on a trip to Southern California and I put in my ultimate address, but then along the way, I want to stop at the In-N-Out on the grapevine. And so it's, where am I going? Well, I'm going to In-N-Out. Well, where am I really going? To visit my daughter in college. So where am I going? I'm going to both places. Maybe that's what was happening here. They're saying, God, you're going to bring us to Mount Sinai. You're going to bring us to the promised land. You're going to bring us into your tabernacle. But what's clear is they knew that God wanted to bring them to the place that he lived. God is going to bring us to his abode. And you guys. That's the story of the whole Bible. The story of the whole Bible is that God made a place for us to live with him, and we blew it. And then God worked really hard to make it possible for us to live with him again. That's the story of scripture. And they're just singing about it. They're like, God, thank you that this is what you are doing. You are going to, by faith, we believe, you're gonna bring us into your holy abode. They knew that God had plans for them. In their minds, they were now his people, just like he promised. Their identity was wrapped up in him. He would purchased them on that Passover night. They would be planted and established, they sang, by him and with him forever and ever in the closing line of the song. He loved them, in other words, and was living out a covenant that he had made with them and made with their ancestors. What about you? Are you conscious of God's covenant love for you and with you? If you've believed in Jesus, if you trusted in Jesus, he has placed his covenant upon you. In a moment, we're going to partake of communion where Jesus, on that first communion night said, this is the blood of my new covenant, my blood shed for you. It really isn't about performance as much as we might want to do well for the Lord. It really isn't about our holiness as much as we might want to be and should want to be holy for the Lord. It's about the covenant that God has given to us. And I've been thinking about this concept myself, just personally as a man over the last few months, just thinking about God's covenant of love with all of us, but with Nate Holdridge. I've just been contemplating that, thinking about that. You know, as a pastor, I I try to work really hard When I make decisions, I want to make the best decisions. I'd like to have a track record of good, faithful, reasonable, full of faith, but full of faithfulness kind of decisions. I'd like to have all of that. But when I fixate upon that too much, it's almost like I'm saying, if I get it right, then God will bless me. Is that why God blesses? We're in a covenant of love with him. He has made a decision for whatever reason. He's just like, I really like Nate Holdridge. I don't understand it, because I know me pretty good. (laughs) So it's really surprising. So we have to set our minds upon the reality that God has covenanted with his people. Now, I mentioned earlier that each section of this Red Sea song ends with a stone sentence. All four sections, a stone sentence, except for this last and final section. I mean, in verse five, they went down like the depths, into the depths like a stone. In verse uh, 10, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. In verse 16, they became still as a stone. Uh, But there's no stone mentioned at the end of this song. In verse 18, it just ends, it says, the Lord will reign forever and ever. It's almost like you want to say to Moses and Miriam, like, hey, you guys really blew it. You know, it was going really good. You had this cool thing going on, the double mention at the beginning of each section and then the stone, like you need to wrap it up. But I almost wonder if this was intentional as a way for the spirit to communicate the song's not over. The the note has been played and it's echoing throughout human history. And God is saying to every human heart, it's not too late. The Red Sea waters are still open. You can be someone who sings this song. You can believe in Jesus. You can trust Jesus. You can be set free, and you can join my people of old in singing a song that is not yet over with. I believe that might be the reason why this last segment doesn't close with the word stone or lead. And so the question is, do I want that? Do I long for that? Do I want to engage in loving him in that way, partaking of his story as he brings me home into himself. When they asked Jesus what's the greatest commandment, he said it's this, and he quoted from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, he wants to be in covenant love with you, but the question I think here is, do I wanna be in covenant love with him? And the people of Israel, at least at this point, they're singing, yeah, we're we're about it, we're into it.